You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Let's head to Dublin city centre now to get more reaction to the news last night that the country is heading to level five restrictions from midnight tomorrow. That means the first full day of restrictions will be Thursday. Our reporter Fiacra Okyana is there for us this morning. Fiacra. Audrey, I'm here in Dublin city centre in what would normally be a bustling rush hour Tuesday morning. But last night's news of a second lockdown has seen what appears to be a sharp fall in early commuters. I spoke to some in the past hour about their views on the second lockdown and their concerns about what happens next, both for the country and themselves. Well, luckily for me, I'm still working. But I know for the people that aren't working, it's going to be a really hard time. Because this is, there's nothing open, there's nowhere to do. Like, obviously, the economy is going to be affected by everything. Um, but I kind of expected it. <laughs> I don't see my grandchildren. I can't travel. I can't see my family. So we would like it to change. Obviously, with Christmas coming up, obviously it's an important time for grandparents and grandchildren and families as well. I guess that's probably on your mind at the moment. That's most on my mind, and there is no evidence that we will be a, that it makes any sense to have lockdown till the first of December, and then we can have a normal Christmas. There's no evidence. There's no logic. There's no sense. Well, I think they should do it properly. Something like the Chinese did it. That's what they should have done from the get-go. How does it affect you directly? Uh, you work in the construction service yourself. Well, it's making us uneasy, like they did in the beginning. They locked down everything, left the construction open for two weeks, closed it down. People are losing their jobs. Uh, me as a foreigner, I'm also just as worried. I um, just moved to Ireland in January, so it's quite worrisome for us. Well, I kind of think it's needed, uh, but I, I do think they need to, you know, the fines need to come in because I think a lot of people just don't care. You know, it, it's sad for the businesses. I'm in the hospitality sector. We're virtually going to close now. Uh, apart from that, I don't know what we can do. You know, we're in this together, as they say, but I, I really think a lot of people think it's going away. They think this, you know, it's only a flu. And I think we need the fines in for that to stop that, really do. Looking around Stephen's Green in this area this morning, it's certainly, it's not quite deserted, but it's certainly a lot quieter than it would normally be. Do you think the possibility of people losing their jobs is on a lot of people's minds right now? Oh yeah, I think, without a doubt, I think a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. A lot of the smaller businesses, all the small coffee shops you see are are, are virtually closed. There's a lot of people walking around. I've noticed yesterday and today a lot of traffic on the road these two days, but I think a lot of people are clearing out their offices, that sort of stuff, because they're virtually at home now for the next few weeks. You're a student yourself, so how has it affected uh, college? Well, we're still allowed to go in, but um, having said that, I think it's a bit stupid because I, I live up in Tallaght and I'm out in college in Finglas so I, I take uh, four buses out every day and the chances of me getting on, on, like the virus because of that it's it's ridiculous so I think you know if, if you're putting the whole country into lockdown I don't see the point in keeping colleges and schools open. So lots of concerns there over a second lockdown and what it means to individuals. A reminder, Level 5 comes into effect overnight on Wednesday and will include a five-kilometre travel restriction, a ban on visiting people in their own homes, uh, pubs and restaurants being limited to takeaways and other limitations. Back to you in the studio. Vicra, thank you very much indeed. And indeed, full details of what Level 5 restrictions mean can be found on the rte.ie website. 
Now, just 11 days to go to Election Day in the United States. More than 45 million people have already cast their votes for either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. And last night, the two men met for the last television debate of this campaign. Our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan, uh, was watching. Uh, and sadly, Brian, I have to confess, uh, so was I. It was a more civilised affair, but there was still plenty of disagreement, wasn't there, in this final debate? Yeah, plenty of disagreements, but none of the interruptions or the aggression that we saw the last time, Anya, and organisers were ready for that. They had brought in mute buttons for the microphones and they were going to mute any candidate that tried to interrupt or shout over their opponent. But in the end of the day, the mute buttons weren't really needed. A lot of that was down to the moderator, Kristen Welker of NBC News. She was excellent. She cut them off if they were running over time. She really kept them in shape. Previous moderators had struggled during the first debate. Chris Wallace of Fox News really couldn't keep much control of it and actually last night he praised her saying that she had done you know a better job than him and in fact this presenter Kristen Welker also got praise from Donald Trump who said she had done a good job and he had actually clashed with that particular journalist in the past and Donald Trump very well behaved last night when it came to the interruptions but yes there were still plenty of clashes and the first clash came on the issue of the coronavirus it dominated much of the debate Joe Biden said that anyone who was responsible for so many deaths should not remain president Donald Trump defended his handling of the pandemic. President Trump said, we're learning to live with it, which prompted this response from Joe Biden. He says that we're, uh, you know, we're learning to live with it. People are learning to die with it. You folks home will have an empty chair at the kitchen table this morning. That man or wife going to bed tonight and reaching over to try to touch their out of habit where their wife or husband was is gone. Learning to live with it. Come on. We're dying with it. Because he has never said, you see, you said it's dangerous. When's the last time? Is it really dangerous still? Are we dangerous? You tell the people it's dangerous now? What should they do about the danger? And you say, I take no responsibility. Let me talk about your two. Excuse me, I take, full, I take full responsibility. It's not my fault that it came here. It's China's fault. And you know what? It's not Joe's fault that it came here either. It's China's fault. They kept it from going into the rest of China for the most part. But they didn't keep it from coming out to the world, including Europe and ourselves. And Brian, um, that was the exchanges between them in terms of the coronavirus, obviously dominating the campaign. But uh, the Trump campaign very much hoping that they'll get the kind of turnaround uh, in the last 11 days that he managed to achieve against Hillary Clinton in 2016. And they're going big on the Hunter Biden story. How did that feature in this debate last night? Yeah, it's interesting you said Hillary Clinton. This is like the Hillary Clinton emails thing that we had four years ago. Hunter Biden, uh, Joe Biden's son, Donald Trump repeatedly accuses him and claims that he was involved in corrupt business deals in China, Ukraine and Russia. He said that Hunter Biden and two of Joe Biden's brothers were like vacuum cleaners sucking up money and using Joe Biden's position as vice president to make themselves rich. Joe Biden fired back saying that it was Donald Trump who was receiving money from foreign countries, pointed to recent media reports but a secret Chinese bank account that Donald Trump has. Now, Joe Biden would have known that these hunter attacks were going to come. He was ready for them. And here's how he responded. There's a reason why he's bringing up all this malarkey. There's a reason for it. He doesn't want to talk about the, the, the substantive issues. It's not about his family and my family. It's about your family. 
and your family's hurting badly, if you're making less than, if you're a middle-class family, you're getting hurt badly right now. You're sitting at the kitchen table this morning deciding, well, we can't get new tires, they're bald because we have to wait another month or so. Or are we going to be able to pay the mortgage? Or who's going to tell her she can't go back to, to community college? They're the decisions you're making in the middle-class families like I grew up in Scranton and Claymont. They're in trouble. We should be talking about your families, but that's the last thing he wants to talk about. I want, to, is a I want to talk about North Korea. Me, I do want to second, turn to please. 10 seconds, Mr. President. That's 10 a seconds. typical political statement. Let's get off this China thing. And then he looks, the family, around the table, everything. Just right. a typical politician when I see that. Let's talk I'm about North Korea. I'm not a typical Korea politician. Okay, That's President. why I got elected. That let's was, talk let's about get off the subject of China. Let's talk around, sitting around the table. All right. Come on, Joe, you can do better. We're going to talk. Uh, and that's what they had to say on that. Um, certainly, uh, Joe Biden's answer there is a masterclass in what they call a pivot, where you're asked a question about one thing and you manage to turn it into uh, into an answer on, on another thing, which he did uh, there. And presumably that was what he'd prepped on. Uh, as I was saying earlier, Brian, 45 million votes already cast. So was this debate, I mean, Republicans much happier with President Trump's performance I've seen in the the initial reaction. Is it a game changer at this stage or no? Is there a winner? Yeah, well, so first off, on front, in terms of a winner, of course, as they always do, both sides came out and claimed victory. I think both sides will be pleased. Yes, Donald Trump reined himself in. We didn't see the interruptions. We didn't see the aggression. That first debate performance damaged him in the opinion polls. Joe Biden will be pleased with his performance. It wasn't the most amazing debate. There was some of that typical Joe Biden rambling, some of him losing his train of thought, but there was no big gaffes, no big missteps. Did either side land a killer blow? Maybe not. There were some interesting attacks, I think, Joe Joe Biden at one point was uh, during the climate change part of the debate. Mm-hmm. The subject of oil came up. Joe Biden was referring to the fact that he would transition America away from oil. Donald Trump latched on this and said, you know, this would be bad news for Texas. This would be bad news for Oklahoma and Pennsylvania. Also, we saw Joe Biden land a pretty decent blow on Donald Trump when it came to the issue of race relations. Donald Trump has repeatedly claimed that he has been the best president for the African-American community since Abraham Lincoln. And here's how Joe Biden responded to that. Abraham Lincoln here is one of the most racist presidents we've had in modern history. He pours fuel on every single racist fire. Every single one. Started off his campaign coming down the escalator saying he's getting rid of those Mexican rapists. He's banned Muslims because they're Muslims. He has moved around and made everything worse across the board. He says to the, about the poor boys, last time we were on stage here, he said, I told him to stand down and stand ready. Come on. This guy is a dog whistle about as big as a foghorn. He made a reference to Abraham Lincoln. Where did that come in? I mean, you said you're Abraham that, Lincoln. No, no, where did that? No, no. You said, I said not since Abraham Lincoln has anybody right. done what I've done for the black community. And I'm saying, I didn't say I'm Abraham Lincoln. I said not since Abraham Lincoln has anybody done what I've done for the black community. Now, you have done nothing other than the crime bill, which put oh God. Th- tens of thousands of of black men mostly in jail. All right, let me, you know let, what? Me, let me they ask remember Vice it President because Biden if you look at what's happening with the voting right now, let me ask they Vice remember President that Biden you treated them very, very badly. The, Just the, take a look at what's happening out there. Vice that was the moderator, Kristen Welker, with Donald J. Trump and Joe Biden in that final debate of the US presidential campaign and uh, our Washington correspondent, Brian O'Donovan, talking to us about that debate. Thank you.
something completely different now. A NASA spacecraft called Osiris Rex has touched the surface of an asteroid in an attempt to collect loose rubble. It's the United States' first asteroid sample return mission aiming to collect and carry an unaltered sample from an asteroid called Bennu back to Earth for scientific study. Francis McCarthy from Blackrock Castle Observatory joins us. Francis, good morning. This sounds sounds like a very complicated mission. It really... It's, it's one of those what-were-they-thinking missions, but they made a couple of things easy. First off, Bennu is an asteroid that's not incredibly far away, so it was only a couple of years to get there, unlike five to ten years to head to some planets, so it was a short mission. They decided to not land, they just tagged it. So the spacecraft stuck out a long arm and went, gotcha, literally, gotcha. They'll only know what they've got later today when the camera that took the picture of what they tagged manages to send back its image. So they'll know, did we stir up the surface of this asteroid enough? Have we captured some of the material in our little container? And if they have, next year, the spacecraft is going to head back to Earth, taking two years to come back, and then we'll have an idea of what's actually on the surface of this asteroid. Why do we need to know this? Why do we need to know this? This type of asteroid is um, a remnant of the very, very early solar system. So where did the stuff that made up the Earth come from? Are other planets like us? Our surface is so changed due to volcanoes and life and an atmosphere. This is untouched, pristine solar system material. And studying it on Earth means we can use all our instruments and we can get a real sense of what is our solar system and what else is out there. Francis, you're only in Cork and there's a massive delay on our line. Just before I let you go, you said it's not that far away, given 2020's record so far. It it is far enough away, isn't it? Like It's not going to hit us. Um, Probably not. It is one of the more likely to hit us ones. But it's like a one in 3,000 chance, and not this century. Francis, thanks, worth studying. thanks very much for speaking. Just again, that's Francis McCarthy at the Blackrock Castle Observatory. Next week, the Mother and Baby Homes Commission is due to send its final report to the government. The commission was set up more than five years ago following revelations about a mass grave at the home in Tume in County Galway. It was tasked with examining the circumstances in which tens of thousands of pregnant women were sent to institutions and their children forcibly adopted. However, as we've been hearing, a row has broken out over the treatment of information provided to the Commission, with controversial legislation being rushed through the doyle. The government says the law is needed to protect the records. Survivors, campaigners and opposition politicians say it will actually make it harder for people to get access to information and that there were other options open to the government. We're joined now on the line by the Minister for Children, Roderick O'Gorman. Good morning. Good morning, Rachel. A great many people, including survivors of these institutions, are angry and upset by what the government is doing. Are they wrong? Well, look, I know there, myself and and all TDs and senators have gotten a huge amount of communications from survivors of of mother and baby homes over the last two weeks. Uh, And look, I acknowledge as minister, 
I should have done that. I, I needed to do a better job at communicating what the government was doing and engaging with survivors groups. Uh, and I know a lot of anxiety has been caused and I certainly deeply regret um, the fact that my failures to communicate properly caused that anxiety. But just to focus on what this piece of legislation does, um, the Commission of Investigation has been working over the last five years and it has established a database of all the women and children who passed through the main mother and baby homes and it's identified the dates in which they were in those homes. And that database can help the children connected with those homes establish their full identity. Now, under the existing law, the law under which the mother and baby homes was originally established, all the archives from the Commission's investigation have to be sealed for 30 years. But when we saw the value that this particular database could have for helping children establish their identity, we decided to act to ensure the database and the records that support it don't go into that archive. So we've passed that law to ensure the database and the supporting records are taken out of the archive uh, for the time being, they're given to Tusla to help Tusla with its, with its existing tracing services. And I've committed to bringing in new information and tracing legislation, and I'll bring that to the doll next year. And this database will be incredibly useful in helping children who were in the mother and baby homes establish their, uh, their, their identity. If, as you say, the fundamental problem here is the 2004 Act under which the Commission was established, why not amend that Act rather than introduce this legislation? The entire Commission of Investigation over the last five years um, has worked on the basis of the 2004 Act. And in the course of the debate yesterday, different deputies expressed different views. Some said uh, people should be able to access their personal information that's in the archive. Others said all elements of the archive should be opened. The entire thing should be opened. Um, and my concern certainly with the latter proposal is that if we allow that, um, when the Commission reports in uh, a week and a half's time, uh, there's a real risk that we'll see legal challenges to the Commission's report because people who engage with the Commission on the understanding of the existing law will then feel that, 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 that the, the legal protections around them have been completely withdrawn. But what I will say is I'm absolutely aware that particularly for personal information, the 30-year ceiling coming from the original law is really problematic. So what I stated in the doll yesterday um, is that I'm committed initially to engaging with the Attorney General to see what um, avenues there are there to address the 30-year issue, particularly with regard to personal information. But I also want to work with the Oireachtas uh, Committee on Children and work with colleagues uh, in, in the Dáil and Shannad and bring in survivor groups uh, bring in those academics who have been representing and supporting yeah, but should them you not to, have done to bring that. a solution. Should you not have done that before now? This commission has been sitting for five years. They knew about the 2004 legislation, as did politicians. So why this last minute rush without adequate consultation? The, the reason we've rushed is because of the deadline of the 30th of October. Um, once the Commission reports and the Commission has indicated that it is ready to report on the 30th of October, uh, once the Commission reports, it immediately stands dissolved at law and all its archive is sealed. And Why not then extend the life of the Commission? Because by extending the life of the Commission, we would have had to delay the submission 
of the final report. Um, and as you know, that final report was, was meant to come in two years ago. Originally, mm, but people have already waited five years. Could they not wait? Would they not be willing to wait another couple of months? I, I, I didn't want to ask survivors to wait more because I understand how eager they are to see the results of the Commission's investigation from the last five years. The report is going to be about 4,000 pages long. It's going to have specific chapters dealing with each of the mother and baby homes. It's going to have a chapter looking at the social uh, the, the, the social history of Ireland at the time to try and put what was happening in the mother and baby homes in, in a wider context. And it's also going to have a chapter where people who gave their personal stories to the confidential committee of the commission where their those personal stories will be reflected so i think the commission's report is an absolutely es- essential part of answering what happened in these mother and baby homes and i want to ensure that that gets published as quickly as possible but as i said earlier i am absolutely committed to addressing the issue of the 30-year rule and the very legitimate concerns that people have that their personal information is contained in that archive that decision on 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 sealing the archive was made uh, in 2015 when the commission was established under the original legislation i think we've all a, a greater understanding now of the importance of people's personal information. And I think some of the issues to do with the Mother and Baby Home Commission, they were reflected in, in a debate in the Dáil last year about the records of the Ryan Commission into the industrial schools. So I think we need to just take a step mm. back and consider how we treat this information and, yeah. and how we archive it appropriately. Just on that point, another point being put forward by campaigners and the opposition is that there is a role here for data protection legislation and the GDPR, that people are entitled to their own information. Have you fully explored that? Yeah, um, and uh, I I would have in in the normal course expected that GDPR um, would apply to the to to the archive. But when the GDPR was introduced in Ireland um, in 2018, the Commission of Investigations legislation, that 2004 Act, was amended to explicitly exclude GDPR from applying to the Commission's archive. So the Act was explicit, that was done explicitly in 2018. Now, I, I wasn't in the Oireachtas at that point, so I, I, I don't know the thinking behind that. But that very explicit exclusion is what prevents the application of GDPR mm. in, in, do, in do this you, situation. Do you accept, but, though, that there are a number of experts, cons- a considerable number of experts in this area who have made mm. this, you know, their life's work, yeah. and they disagree agree with that interpretation. So maybe yeah, uh, could you not go back to the Attorney General who gave you this advice and say, listen, can we look at this again? And that's exactly what I've, I, I committed to doing do the doll yesterday, uh, Rachel. I absolutely accept that there are some very eminent experts in this area who, who disagree with the interpretation given by the Attorney General. So I have said, as well as looking at the 30-year rule, we need to look at the application of GDPR, again, to personal information that's contained in the archive. And indeed, it may be through um, an, uh, uh, some, some change in, in, in that exclusion that we can actually address both issues as regards access to personal information. I can completely understand how survivors want to get this information. Uh, Ireland has not put in um, good 
information and tracing legislation. My predecessor, Catherine Zappone, went a long way to try and in- introduce that, but the, the bill she proposed didn't, uh, was withdrawn from the Shannon. Uh, and it's my intention, and, and it was one of the first commitments I made as Minister, to bring in proper information and tracing legislation so the people who have been denied access this, to this information so long can actually uh, secure their full identity. As you say yourself, though, you're talking here about people who have been consistently treated with a lack of respect by the state and by other institutions. Don't they have good reason to be sceptical about any official or political promises now? They do. Um, and again, I, I um, as I say, I should have done better in how I communicated how I, what I was trying to achieve with this particular piece of legislation. But I think it is clear uh, that there is strong support across the Oireachtas for um, bringing in changes that can properly secure people's um, people's personal information. Mm, but you and won't be changing it in the short term. That, that's your fundamental message. I believe that this bill is necessary to secure the database. Uh, and as, I've, as I, I said at the start, this database is incredibly valuable and will have a, an immediate benefit for people who are who are undertaking, for people who were in uh, mother and baby home and are seeking to, to trace okay. their identity. And just, just one so final I, I believe it's important that this database is secured, taken out of the archive and is, is secured for okay. use. And just one final question then. You're due to get this report next week. As you said yourself, it's very lengthy. When will it be published? The report will will need to be reviewed by uh, my department and by the Attorney General as well. And subject to to that, a decision of government will will be required to publish it. Um, I can't give a definitive uh, timeline today, but what I will say is I want that report uh, published as quickly as possible. Um, Survivors have waited long enough. Uh, and I, as well as the um, elements that I outlined earlier, the report is going to contain recommendations as to both um, how, how, to, how to provide redress to those who were within the mother and baby homes. And I think it's important that they're published so the government can act on those. But as part of the wider government action, as I said, I've committed to looking at the issue of the um, availability of personal information in the archives. Right. Um, and, 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 and I'll be working on that to deliver that commitment. All right. Roderick O'Gorman, Minister for Children, thank you for joining us on Morning Ireland. To keeping in touch now with loved ones locked down in hospital. Staff and management at South to Prairie General Hospital in Clonmel are helping people do just that. The hospital has launched Keeping in Touch. It's an email service for patients to get messages from family and friends in wards where phones are banned. Keen McCormack joins us now to tell us more about this story. And Keen, we've all heard of hospital staff putting people in contact through video calls. I'm sure they're doing that in Clonmel as well. So why is there a need for this email service? Well, Mary, as you say, video calls do happen in South Tipperary General Hospital, but there are wards like coronary care units where phones just aren't allowed. And also on top of that, some older people, they just don't like talking through screens. And for that reason, the hospital has set up its keeping in touch email service. Here's its general manager, Maria Barry. This is an initiative called Keep in Touch. It works by family and friends emailing into the general to the 
quality manager's office an email where they then deliver it to the patient on the ward within 24 hours of receiving it. Patients can be lonely and distressed and hospital admissions can be quite stressful for patients. So with the current restricted visiting, we felt that it was important that our patients had contact with their family. So I think it was important that we did this because we recognised that some patients don't have access to mobile phones and indeed smartphones. Um, while we do use iPads on the ward, not all the patients want to be want to use them. They find it difficult to use FaceTime. And in general, I suppose a number of our patients would be older patients and they much prefer the written word. Patients look forward to a letter and um, we felt that this would be an important initiative, particularly for those type of patients. The 233-bed South Tipperary General Hospital is getting increased COVID-19 admissions and there are restrictions on visitors. Again, here's Maria Barry. Keen, we're currently seeing an increase in the numbers of presentations and number of, of notifications of COVID positive patients in the localities. Currently, we have strict visiting restrictions at the moment, really. It's only in, for patients who are allowed visiting for compassionate reasons or indeed um, critical care patients. Now, Keen, this Keeping in Touch service, it works as we've heard when a family emails in and a nurse brings the email to the patient's bedside. What are the staff at the hospital saying? Well, Mary, they say it's really important, especially for those patients who find themselves isolated in wards, not able to use their phones. And it's especially important so they can hear from their loved ones. Here's coronary care staff nurse Anne-Marie Ryan. It's hugely beneficial for patients and it's lovely to see uh, people um, inquiring about them uh, when they are in hospital and maybe they can't um, keep in touch through any other uh, system that people would take the time to email them in uh, a message to let them know that they are thinking of them and we think it's a wonderful initiative. A wonderful initiative. Anne-Marie Ryan nursed 80-year-old Tommy Miles from Ardfennan and when his family emailed him she brought the message to his bedside and she read that message to him. Here's Tommy's son-in-law, Stephen O'Brien. From our point of view and being away from home, Tommy would be a very social being and he was used to people around him all his life so now he was in a situation where he had no one able to call that he would he would be familiar with and so on. So it just made it quite difficult for the whole family, I think, really. And Tommy's grandson was at our house actually when I was doing this and we got him to dictate a, a little message to Tommy as well and we took a photograph and we included that in the email in, in the one from, from Mikey Miles to Tommy. Tommy is um, a, a loving dog at home which he, he absolutely dotes on and I took a photograph of the dog and I included that. By all accounts um, it kind of made his evening really in a minute a, a bit a bit shorter supposed to stay away from home a bit is a bit shorter and I think he really enjoyed receiving the email you know a, gr- a great initiative I think mm, I'm sure he did enjoy it and Keen you talked to, to nine-year-old Mikey as well yeah, I did. And as you've just heard Stephen O'Brien saying there that Mikey also wrote to Tommy and I asked Mikey what he said to his grandfather in that email. Um, that I'm doing well and I miss him and I love him. Did you miss him when he was in hospital? Yeah. Why? Because I'd be going to school in the mornings with him and he wasn't there. But is uh, sending an email or writing a letter a good idea? Yeah, it's a very good idea. Um, very nice and like exciting to cheer him up and all and I'm happy he's home. 80 year old Tommy Miles is just out of hospital and for him the keeping in touch service lifted his spirits. I spoke to him earlier. I was stunned. My grandson, he's nine, Michael Miles is his name. He was having a crack at me oh, I hope you're okay and all the rest of it. When I saw the grandson Michael and, and saw the photograph of the dog 
Uh, I was delighted to get it, to be honest about him. It's, it's, it, it gave me great lift anyway. What age is Rocky? He's five years old. He's King Charles. All right. Spiked out completely. He's about twice the normal weight of a dog. You, you feed him well. He's a butcher's dog. He's not yeah, as fit as a butcher's, butcher's dog. Yeah, but he'd rather chocolate than butcher's meat. But <laughs> I was delighted to get them, that correspondence because I had, when, you, when you're cut off from your family and you're not in the best of form, it's great to get some kind of a, a thought of home. The importance of getting an email or a message while you're isolated in hospital described there by local Ardfinnan butcher Tommy Miles. Well, finally, on post launched a free post service over the weekend to and from care homes. It doesn't work for hospitals, but it's available for care homes. Mary. Garthi have upgraded the investigation into the disappearance of Jojo Dollard 25 years ago to a murder investigation. Let's hear a clip of a news report from the time she disappeared. The last reported contact of 21-year-old Josephine Dollard was when it's claimed she called a friend Mary Cullinan at around 11.15pm on Thursday last from the Kildare village of Moon. She was having problems hitching a lift but said she would call when she arrived home. Well, let's talk to our crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds. Now, Paul, 25 years ago this happened. Will you just fill us in from what happened back then? That's correct, Audrey. Uh, Jojo Dollard was 21 years of age when she disappeared. She was a lively, popular, happy young woman. At the time, she had moved to Callan in County Kilkenny into a new job uh, to work in Granger's restaurant there. She decided to go to Dublin on the th- on Thursday, the 9th of November, 1995. Uh, she had worked in the city previously, and it's believed she was clearing up her affairs there before her move to Kilkenny. Now, she missed the last direct bus home that night. She got another bus to Nace. She hitched a lift to Kilcullen, and then another lift on to Moon. And while she was in Moon, as you heard there in that report from Michael Lally, she called her friend Mary Cullinan from a phone box in the village to tell her where she was. Now, when she was on the phone to Mary, a car passed. The family believed that Jojo may have flagged that car down. Her sister Kathleen says that Jojo came back to Mary and said, I have a lift. I'll phone you again at my next stop. That was the last place she was seen or heard from. The family say that phone call meant they were able to verify that Jojo had got as far as Moon, but it's after Moon uh, that uh, they were trying to put the pieces together. The area was searched. There was an intensive investigation. Jojo's case uh, was looked at over the years, was part of Operation Trace in the 1990s, which was set up to look at the cases of six missing women in 1998. There have been numerous appeals for information in the case of Jojo Dollard throughout the years, uh, but the case remains unsolved. It's a case which really has stayed with people for all of that time. So what's likely to happen today, Paul? Well, it is a significant announcement today by the Gardaí uh, that they have upgraded this to a murder investigation. Now, they obviously won't disclose everything uh, about their inquiries, uh, but they have carried out, they say they have carried out proof-of-life inquiries. They're satisfied that Jojo uh, came to serious harm. Uh, today, there'll be a joint appeal in County Kildare by the Gardaí and Jojo's family. Uh, her sister Mary and her brother Tom passed away not knowing what happened to her, uh, but her sister Kathleen is expected to be at the press conference today in Newbridge. Uh, there'll obviously be a general appeal for information, asking for people uh, for information on what's already known, her last movements, what she was wearing. She was last seen wearing black jeans uh, and black ja- uh, white top, black shoes, uh, and of course the last phone call was just after half eleven that night. But interestingly enough, uh, there seems to be a new line of inquiry in the sense that the Guardian are also seeking information uh, on uh, a Sony Walkman, or a Sanyo Walkman, should I say, 
uh, they believe that uh, Jojo Dollard had a Sanyo Walkman with her that night. Uh, now, for younger people, a Walkman was a portable cassette radio player with headphones. That hasn't been found. Uh, the Gardaí are actively looking for that, and they believe it, it went everywhere with Jojo. And if they find that, or if they find information in relation to that Sanyo Walkman, that could be the key or a key to progressing this investigation. Okay, Paul, thank you very much indeed. Our crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds, there. Now, the government's plans for a tribunal of inquiry into the cervical check controversy to be set up next week has met with flat-out opposition from many of those who've campaigned long and hard on the issue. One of them is Vicky Phelan. Good morning to you, Vicky Phelan. Good morning, Anya. What's wrong with the government plans? Um, there's, there's a lot wrong with the government's plans, I suppose. Um, it's exactly one year ago today, actually, Anya, when the Taoiseach uh, at the time, Leo Varadkar, delivered a state apology to the women and families. Uh, that's actually a year ago today, I imagine. Um, and that was a, you know, a momentous day for us. We felt that this marked like the beginning of a, a healing process for many of us. We felt heard. Um, unfortunately, this week, uh, when we read the letter from Minister Donnelly, we have felt anything but heard, to be honest. Um, you know, about seven weeks ago, we met with the minister and members of his department, um, and we raised a number of issues that we had with the tribunal. Uh, we left the meeting at the time, encouraged that there would be further consultation. We never felt at any stage that uh, we weren't heard. Um, yet, you know, two days ago, we found ourselves reeling uh, in shock, really, um, to receive a letter, not only rejecting all of our concerns but confirming the imminent establishment of the tribunal in seven Mm -hmm. days' time. You know, we were led to believe um, with the tribunal that it was the needs of our members and not those of the HSC and the labs that were to come first in in the government's response to to the wrongs and the injuries that have been visited upon our members. Um, And we simply do not understand, Anya, why the minister would not take the opportunity to work with us to make the tribunal something that our members might be encouraged to engage with. Instead, uh, you know, if changes or amendments cannot be made and the Minister forges ahead with this uh, tribunal next week, uh, we will be forced to um, uh, you know, recommend to our members that they do not engage with the tribunal. Um, so, so it seems to be um, a, a fairly um, a fairly strong impasse you're at all right, uh, yourselves and the government on this. And it's it's been such a long road to get to this. It Talk to me in, in, in simple terms about the, the kernel of your argument about the involvement of the laboratories in this tribunal so the, and the we, difference that would make. So some, the, the, there, were, there were a number of substantive issues that we raised um, at the meeting a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, there, there were three main arguments, really, um, or issues. So there's the adversarial nature of the tribunal um, involving the labs. Um, then there's the... Um, uh, recurrence. So if uh, a woman gets a recurrence of cancer um, after having taken a case to the tribunal, there should be an allowance um, to allow the woman to go back to the tribunal, much as there is with hep C. And then there's the issue of the statute of limitations. So if we look at, um, I suppose, the main issue is the, 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 the adversarial nature of, of a tribunal. So the tribunal, as, as we see, is not fit for purpose. The legal landscape has changed since the 2018 report of Justice Meenan. And that's because of two uh, landmark cases um, the Morrissey case and the Carrick case which literally only settled a couple of weeks ago now in fairness the Carrick case settled after our meeting with the Minister mm-hmm. um, but you know it, 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 um, it was ongoing at the time and even at that stage we knew that the HSE had been refused to allow 
um, to join a lab in the case of the Carrick case. So in the Morrissey judgment at the time, um, Anya, you'll remember that one of the rulings was that um, the Supreme Court found that the... um, the, the HSE was primarily responsible for the cervical screening programme. So um, it is no longer uh, necessary for women to sue both the HSE okay. and labs, which had been the case up to that point. So, so th- what, sorry what we're asking cut- for is that the tribunal... Yeah. So, sure. so just, I'm, I'm just trying to kind of clarify this so people can, because obviously there's a huge amount at stake here uh, legally and, and, and it's not simple. But, but in essence, yeah. what you're saying to the government is leave the bar- laboratories out of this tribunal if you want to go and sue them separately. I suppose the counter argument is that that could end up with, you know, sick women, women in difficult situations having to give evidence in a separate state case against the laboratories as well as going to the tribunal. Well, we have argued that that would not happen. So the Minister has been advised by the Attorney-General that laboratories have to be involved in the legal proceedings in some way, but there is a way that would ensure that there would be less uh, a less adversarial nature with the labs involved, which happened in the Carrick case. And let's go back to Vicky Phelan, who's back on the line. And thank you for your patience uh, with the technological gremlins, Vicky Phelan. Uh, we'll be talking to uh, we'll be talking to Health Minister Stephen Donnelly uh, around a quarter to nine, around twenty to nine. What do you want him to do about this planned tribunal for next Tuesday? Well, I suppose I mean, uh, ask himself the question: Why is it so hard to do what's right? You know, for women who have already been failed by the state. I mean, that's what's at stake here. You know, this was promised to us. Uh, we've been waiting for it for two years. We engaged with uh, you know the minister in the last seven weeks, and none of our concerns were taken on board. Anya, not one of them. You know, we we cross-checked against the minutes, um, and then to announce that this tribunal is going to be established in, in the next seven days it just feels like a slap in the face, to be honest, to most of us who have been involved with this over the last number of months. Um, so we would ask the minister to sit, sit down with us, sit down with members of the 221 Plus, the women and families who are actually, uh, this tribunal is aimed at. You know, I don't see the point in launching a tribunal um, and establishing a tribunal for a group of people for whom this is not fit for purpose, who do not accept uh, the, the tribunal as it currently stands. So we would ask for the minister to reconsider establishing the tribunal and to sit down with the people concerned in order to get uh, an estab- a, a tribunal established that will work and that w- women would actually want to access. You know, and there are a number of issues which we have given solutions uh, for. For example, as I said to you about the recurrence issue, you know, the Hep C um, and HIV compensation tribunal allowed people who ha- whose health deteriorated to return to the tribunal at a later point. All we're asking for is something similar because in this situation with cervical cancer, if you get a recurrence, um, you know, it is nearly always fatal. So, you know, th- there should be a provision within the bill uh, or within the act to allow for, for, for something like that to happen. So that's, you know, something that could easily be done. Are you weary? I am, Anya. To be honest, I, I am really weary at this stage um, from all the fighting. I really thought that the tribunal was something that was, um, some, you know, a, a good a good outcome for, for women and families. And yet here we are, you know, two years later, nowhere nearer having something that is actually for the women uh, and that has the women at its heart. Stay well and mind yourself uh, through all the restrictions in the weeks ahead. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us this morning. That's 221 Plus campaigner Vicky Phelan. 
We're turning to the news that Pope Francis has voiced support for same-sex civil unions. In a new documentary, he says homosexual people have a right to be in a family. They are children of God and have a right to a family. Father Bernard Lynch, who's originally from County Clare, has campaigned on this and other issues for many years, and he's on the line. Good morning and thanks for talking to us. Good morning. What did you make of these comments from Pope Francis? Well, uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm delighted. And You know, any move in the direction of hope and a, a positive attitude on the part of the Vatican and the Pope in particular um, to embrace LGBTQI people is a very, very positive statement and a move in the right direction. I'm looking now, at some comments. Sorry, go on. Please continue. I wonder how far he's going to go. I mean, the teachings are still the same, that we are disordered in our nature and evil in our love. So approving, and does that subsume? I don't think so at all. Does that subsume that teaching that we are no longer evil in our love? That's the question I have for the Pope. I'm looking at some comments this morning in the Irish Times from former President Mary McAleese, and and they're in many ways similar to what you've just been saying yourself. She she said that comments in a documentary are one thing, church teaching is another. So what would you like to see the Pope do now? First of all, compliments to the former president. She's a great uh, (coughs) advocate on our behalf. I would like to see that teaching changed. I mean, that teaching is very harmful and destructive um, to the souls of LGBTQI people. And as you know, that teaching came out during the height of the AIDS pandemic in which I worked. And um, it, it was literally soul murder on the young men dying of AIDS. And um, a lot of young people, and a lot of people, period, both here in Ireland and around the world, have already left the church who are LGBTQI because of this. So we have to change that teaching. It is very, very harmful, and um, not at all becoming um, with a man of the gospel as Pope Francis is. I do think he's trying his best. And as I say, and I reiterate, this is very good news. Do you expect much of a pushback, though, from some of the more conservative figures within the Catholic Church? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I mean, I I follow Pope Francis, as you would expect. And, um, you know, he has some, some really, really terrible enemies not just on this one issue, but as you know, anything he has done to try and square the circle around divorced and remarried Catholics, admission to Holy Communion, at the ordination of married people, um, the man is having a very hard time. And um, I have no doubt, and I mean, I'm no authority on this, but I have no doubt that we are witnessing a saint of a man. But he is so limited, I never realized, and I should have, I'm an old man myself at this stage, um, I never realized that the papacy could be so, um, could bring such enmity 
within the fold and within his own cardinaliture and bishops and priests who, you know, really, really um, are out to get him, shall we say. So he's up against it. Well, listen, many thanks for taking our call this morning. We do appreciate it. That was Father Bernard Lynch. Now, a man who did not restrict his movements after returning here from abroad led to at least 56 people being infected with COVID-19. The stark example of how the virus can spread so quickly is revealed in a report by the HSE Midwest, which is published today. Our Midwest correspondent, Cathy Halloran, has seen it and she joins us now. So, Cathy, this guy came back from holiday. He had cold-like symptoms, but he continued with life as normal. Yes, well, this index case, as he is referred to, was abroad on his holidays, but he did not restrict his movements as per the current HSE guidelines when he got home. Now, he had mild symptoms, including a runny nose and a mild sore throat. He checked his temperature. It was normal. He felt reassured by this and socialised with a group of friends. He later, however, tested positive for COVID-19. However, by this stage, he'd already infected a number of his friends. Three of these friends then went on to infect their families. Now, another friend of the group who he infected felt unwell and contacted her GP to arrange a COVID-19 test. Now she had the test in the morning but by the afternoon she felt a bit better and decided to go to a friend's party. After the party she got her test result and it was positive but by attending the party while waiting for her test result she ended up infecting a number of other people the report says. But also the index case had a close extended family who visited each other's houses regularly. They were quite close. This led to some extended family members also getting infected with COVID-19. One of his extended family members who had no symptoms whatsoever, what we describe as asymptomatic, he played a match with his local team and a number of his teammates were infected as a result. The team members then went on to affect a number of other people. So this is an example in this report by Dr May Mannix, the Director of Public Health in the Midwest, showing that in total here in this case, 56 cases were infected from that one original index case affecting up to 10 private households and a sports team and the point that's made by Dr Mannix is this shows how quickly uh, the virus can spread with people not self-isolating and not um, minding the HSE guidelines to self-restrict their movements. A very stark example indeed. Cathy, thank you very much indeed. Our Midwest correspondent there, Cathy Halloran. Now, uh, it seems there may be a problem with getting the turkey on your Christmas dinner. We're all thinking about uh, new ways of uh, doing Christmas this year with the restrictions. But Katrina Morrissey, news editor at the Farmer's Journal, tell us why there might be a shortage of turkeys to go round our Christmas dinners this year. Good morning, Anya. Yeah, sorry to be the bearer of bad news, more bad news on the morning of the Level 5 lockdown. Um, there is a funding dispute which is, is putting your, your turkey Christmas dinner at risk. It's um, a dispute that's been running for quite part of this year and it's between the um, Food Safety Authority and the City and County Managers of the local authorities. And it relates to funding for vets who oversee and certify local abattoirs, which is where the majority of um, small scale producers of uh, poultry and particularly the, the Christmas poultry market have their birds processed for the for the table. So what's the solution going to be if like what's the impact of this going to be before we talk about the solution? 
Yeah, so the impact would be uh, funding at the moment. The contract actually looks like it will run out for vets to certify the abattoir. And those abattoirs are responsible for about 100,000 birds destined for the, the Christmas table. Um, it has been a long running dispute. As I said, the Farmers Journal first reported it back in July. At that time, there was a three month um, kind of a temporary solution put in place to fund the vets. Um, but that contract now, it seems that there's a stalemate between the city and county managers and the FSAI. And it looks like the, the vets contract will be terminated on the 30th of no- November, which is an absolute disaster for anybody who wants to get birds processed for the Christmas table. Uh, I suppose we could always think about a goose maybe, but obviously it's another uh, dreadful blow for particularly for the small producers. And a lot of turkeys, your bronze turkeys and all the rest, they would come from small producers, wouldn't they? They would, as indeed would the geese. So unfortunately, it won't be so easy as to just substitute one for the other. Um, it has left, you know, small producers uh, really in shock. Um, this week, Doreen Allen of, of uh, the, the well-known Ballymaloo Cookery School just described it as a disaster for farmers and local local food producers and says, you know, it's just not good enough to, to drop these farmers and part-time producers who rely on it for their, their income and particularly this time of the year. So there would be a hope, I I suppose that they can come to an agreement. It's around a million euro would be needed, I think, to fund the service. Um, and it is essential. So we'll be all hoping for a Christmas miracle. We certainly will. And Christmas is a time for miracles, so we can uh, but hope. Katrina Morrissey, news editor with the Farmers Journal. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Now it's the last day before the midterm break for many schools and pupils are turning up dressed up in their Halloween finest as well, of course, as their masks. Our reporter Natasha Murta has been speaking to the junior and senior infants of Dalgany National School in Wicklow about Halloween 2020. A werewolf. It's a wolf that bites people and then it turns into a werewolf. At full moon. Is it a good thing to be a werewolf or a bad thing? Bad. Because they're wolves, duh. My sister's dressing up as a witch and my brother's dressing up as a pumpkin. Trick or treat isn't going to happen, so we were going to trick or treat around the house. We're going to hang an apple from the ceiling and bite it, but we have to have no arms and we're going to dip our face in a bowl of flour and try to get the coins out with our phone. Since Halloween is not happening, it's like my parents are going to be in different doors with candy buckets and we're going to see which door they're in and pick the candy. My my mum and dad are going to hide treats in the garden and I'm going to have to find them. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.